You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. Now your host, Steve Hayes. All right, folks, we just continue to roll right through season seven. And, uh, you know, man, season seven, what in the world? Folks, the reason I've got seven seasons is I'm kind of like HBO. I, I just do a handful of episodes per season. So this podcast has been going now, uh, coming up on three years. And uh, one of the delightful things is when I get a guest that returns. Before I started the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast, I had a list of people I wanted to interview. And today's guest is one of them, Bishop Todd Hunter. I had the privilege of interviewing Todd um, a couple of seasons ago and the reason I'm so interested in Todd is because he does have a background in systems theory, also because um, he's an Anglican, and I continue to be fascinated by not only Anglicans, but um, charismatic Anglicans. So Bishop Hunter, uh, I think as many of you know, he's the founding bishop of the Diocese of the Church for the Sake of Others. He has a background having led Alpha USA. He came out of the Vineyard Movement of Churches. And so he just brings a lot of depth and breadth to his thinking. And he just literally is the week of we're recording this one. Uh, he just released a book called Deep Peace, where he identifies peace killers. And then he really casts a vision of how we can encounter peace. That's a lot of where we're going to start today. So Todd, welcome back to Managing Leadership Anxiety. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. I think we have a lot of mutual friends because I know your name uh, comes across the screen of my life. Uh, quite frequently with people bragging about you. So it's good to be with you again. It makes me very happy to hear it. Yeah, it, yeah. it's truly, um, it, it's been such a surprise for me being a rookie author, mm. just the gift that writing a book gives, which is letting you meet some amazing people. So um, oh, I, I love, I, I just really am enjoying this stage of my life for sure. So yeah, it's great I, to be with you again. Thank you. Yeah, I, I don't think you really need me to ask you why you wrote this book. I think, mm. you know, you're writing a book on deep peace. Okay, it's self-evident. Uh, why don't we just get right into, particularly for faith leaders, Todd, you know, you're a bishop, right. yes. and uh, most of my audience, are some kind of faith leader. Where do you see uh, church staffs and local church leaders struggling the most right now as it relates to peace? Yeah. Well, if I think of my long career, Steve, there's an underlying sort of like, I guess, anxiety, nervousness, tension, worry that I think virtually every pastor has. I mean, I'm sure there's some really godly people out there who don't struggle with it. But for us mere mortals, uh, just the, the kind of things that sits in the back of my mind, am I enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing things right? Is my, like, just even preparing for a sermon and getting into a tough exegetical quagmire, and you have to say something on Sunday and so the little fear sits in the back of our mind. Do we, do I really know what I'm talking about? I'm going to stand up there as if I know what I'm talking about. You know, I mean, there's just a hundred things. What does my staff think of me? Is the board or vestry okay with me? So many things that cause kind of an underlying anxiety uh, in, I suppose, leaders of every kind. But as you say, I've been supervising pastors for going on 40 years, so I know it's true of us. But obviously, I wrote this book in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, <laughs> And I don't know about you or what you've been hearing from other guests, but what I saw in the first year or so, Steve, was I was actually blessed and encouraged 
by how well my pastors were doing. And I don't mean to say there's anything special or good about us. But even though you're Anglican. Yes, even though we are Anglican. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Um, but most of my pastors, you know, they responded like I'm sure you saw, like, okay, what does it mean to get online? What does it mean to and, and there was a kind of a creative, energetic response. And most of them did pretty good until A, things started getting really politicized uh, during the election cycle. And then in early January, I saw clergy start taking a little bit of a dive in terms of their energy, started hearing the phrase, I'm sure you've heard decision fatigue, um, starting to hear all the fatigue about having churches and vestries and boards and families and friends, you know, divided over the political issues and the pandemic issues. Um, and then when Delta hit, I've, I've just seen all there. I mean, I'm sure it's true of small business owners and educators, lots of other people. But again, our world is the church and pastors. And I think most pastors are kind of beside themselves at this point. Yeah. In the book, you lay out 10 peace killers. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate the two I was wondering if you'd dive in on is one is aggression. Yeah. And then the other one's obsession with failure. Mm. My struggle as a local church pastor is it feels like I'm paid to be nice. Yeah. And so I, I don't always know what to do with my aggression and my anger. Yeah. And I also struggle, I don't know how to say this quite right, so I'm, I might say it wrong, but um, I, I'm, I'm aware that as a primary leader, as a white man, and uh, as the one that opens the Bible in front of people, I have yeah. massive amounts of power. I'm very aware right. of that. Yes. What I struggle with is when people come at me extremely aggressively, mm. I try to shrink myself down because my words punch harder than theirs do. Correct. They feel heavy. Yeah. So that aggression, what, what's a pastor to do with the aggression she or he carries and fears? What, what do you make of that? Yeah. Well, moments of feeling aggressive, like if you're walking your dog in the neighborhood and suddenly there's a coyote or a wolf, uh, and you have that spontaneous, you know, jolt of adrenaline and you get sort of aggressive towards this thing that could harm you or your dog, you're walking or whatever. That's obviously completely normal. Um, and there are, there are, of course, times in which being aggressive towards something is the good and right and perhaps even godly thing to do. What I'm getting at in the book is a lifestyle of aggression in which someone assumes either con usually subconsciously, sometimes consciously assumes that if I don't win, something's going wrong. Or if I don't win, what God wants to be done through me won't be done. And so this kind of person goes into every meeting, has every conversation in an aggressive manner. Like they'll, you've probably known people who've said, well, I'm just aggressive. Right. Or my, you know, my form of leadership, you certainly hear athletes talking about this all the time. And that's, you know, that's a whole different field. But that sense of, well, let's say uh, I read a book by a CEO who touted, you know, being aggressive, or I heard an athlete, you know, uh, interviewed on ESPN. And so then trying to bring that into the church, the problem is it makes every conversation or every board meeting a win-lose proposition. It's like... Uh, it's like a, fo a football game, like uh, I'm dating this podcast, sorry, but like uh, I hear the Buccaneers are visiting 
uh, Boston again for the first time since Brady's been, you know, quarterback in Tampa. Well, you know, just imagine the tension, the aggression, the will to win. Well, when you turn every board meeting into that, it's exhausting and it wears people out. And I would say, Steve, that I've seen many, many times pastors sitting in front of me, genuinely brokenhearted, in tears, saying, I don't understand why my staff is so upset at me or my board or vestry. And often it's because they've been using these aggressive tactics or maybe manipulative tactics, just something that seems native to them. And they don't realize that subtly over time, that actually does make people feel abused. That's the problem with a pastor taking on as a basic operating system, I'm aggressive. And then anger, you know, so much anger has been directed to us through COVID. And yes. as you mentioned, the Delta right. being kind of the turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, what's a pastor to do with her anger? Yeah. Well, again, anger is not a, like, by definition, bad thing. Um, anger is typically a response to hurt. Underneath it, anger typically has a demand that something happen or not happen. For instance, if we were sitting together today rather than being online and I reached across the table if we were having coffee and gently pinched your arm and said something, well, that would be nothing. But if I pinched your arm and kept pinching harder and harder and harder till it actually started hurting, at some point your natural instinct would be to knock my hand away, right? So there's this flash moment of anger that's that's um, saying, I demand that this pain stop. Well, again those sort of moments of anger, they just are, right? Like emotions are instantaneous, they're spontaneous, we can't control them, they just come. Um, But again, like making anger your friend and like doing life through an angry lens, that's what's a peace killer. Having a moment of anger, as we sometimes say, righteous anger, there's nothing wrong with that. It's again, it's when we make it, um, sorry, let me put that differently. When we imagine, again, perhaps subconsciously, I wouldn't know how to to do life if I didn't use my anger to get my way to win arguments, et cetera. Yeah. And I also think there's just the the leaders that they don't so much wield their anger is that they don't know how to carry it or how to dissipate it. Yep. There's that Uh, side of it. Yeah. Particularly through, you know, the, the now infamous 2020 trifecta of the political election, the racial injustice in yeah. COVID, yeah. so much anger came at us. Yes, right. I think we weren't always sure how to process our own human reaction to it. Yeah. Yes, our, our yeah, the, you're saying the, the anger that we ourselves feel. Yeah. I don't know that this is a magical answer, but it's an honest one. I've really started um, using Steve in the last, feels like two or three years, Ignatian examine in mm. the evenings. So the outline of my kind of rhythm of life is in the morning, I dedicate my day to God. So I I anticipate the day, there are certain prayers I pray. Then throughout the day, I try to practice the presence of God, Um, you know, um, in that sort of classic formational way of just trying to notice the people and events of my life as I go through my day. Um, I'll, I'll say just for the sake of educating our audience, even as we got on this podcast, I as you were doing something, paused and prayed in the quietness of my own heart. Lord, make me a gracious, generous, generative presence on this podcast. Give me any gift I need of wisdom and knowledge. Give me any fruit I need. I literally just go through my day trying to be present to it. 
That alone will help you notice anger you have. But in the evening, then I practice Ignatian examine, where I review my day and notice where did I feel fearful? And, or, you know, Ignatian says consolation or desolation. And sorry if you don't know Ignatian spirituality, but you could, Steve can put something in the show notes and you, yeah, can, no problem. you can go Google something. Um, but examine just simply means to notice where did you feel close to God, uh, to put it, to put consolation in that term, desolation, where did you feel distant from God, maybe distant from yourself, distance from others. And I found that that, Steve, just naming it, just saying, mm. wow, I was really angry at that person. Lord, mm. what's that all about? Yeah, what's going And on? then just to wonder what's underneath that anger. Is it something righteous where I actually, that was a good response? Or really is underneath that anger a, a subtle fear? Or something else that that fuels that anger again, a need to win or control or something. So that's been my biggest practice. Is just Henry Cloud wrote a book called Integrity, hmm. and and it's not a book like integrity in terms of of um, like morals. Honestly, it's like yeah. strength, like a, a bridge has like integrity. How much it or not. can hold. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things Henry says in that book that I've just been a mantra for several years since he wrote it was. We just want to be able to deal with reality. So if we can name reality, we have a chance of doing something with it. If we live not attached, not really present to our life or to God or others, we don't really have much grounding, no traction to grow. So in examine, when I can name, I felt angry in this moment, I felt afraid, uh, I felt misjudged, whatever, just naming those things and working them out with God every day. I have found is the best way I know to name the reality of anger and to try to get underneath it with the Holy Spirit, what's really going on in me. Mm. I love that you brought up Ignatian prayer because it is such an imaginative experience. Yes. Um, so for my listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, previous guest just off the top of my head would be Jared Boyd. Oh, People yes. People could uh -huh. Google Jared Boyd and he's he led us on the podcast through some Ignatian oh, spirituality. Yeah. Um, Todd, as you were chatting, uh, you know, we're not on video, but um, I, I'm under spiritual direction right now from mm -hmm. an Ignatian guide, and he, he gave me this candle. Yeah. And the candle, it's the simplest thing. He just invited me to light it when I'm aware of God's presence uh, and to light it when I need to be aware of God's presence. Uh, <laughs> so lovely. It's, yeah. it's lit right now. I'm going to get one. I like that. I've heard that one other time, and I've never follow through on it. It is the simplest darn little thing. I, yeah. I, you know, such a simple thing and and such a gift for me because I, I left to my own devices, I'm cognitive and I'm proactive. Yes. And I'm not imaginative and I'm not yes. um, contemplative. So just the, the like, just as you prayed before we got on, I, I just lit my candle. And yeah. what, I, what he trained me to do is, is to simply say a mantra. I light this candle yes. by faith, knowing that God's closer to me than the air I breathe. Yes, it's beautiful. It really but that's is. your way of noticing the presence of God. Yeah. And I would bet that sometimes when you light that candle, you notice something about yourself. Yeah, that's, yeah. And that's yeah. what we're really getting at here is, can we live present to our real emotions, neither denying or setting aside or um, rationalizing, but just being real with them before God is has been something that's been really useful for me. Is that a human development thing, Todd? Like I know you're looking at me right now. I know you think I'm probably 25, but I'm actually 49. <laughs> just a, I'm an old man. Yeah. Um, is and, and the older I get, the more relaxed I'm able to be in the, like I can just relax into God's presence. Is, yeah. 
Is that because of all the striving in your 20s and 30s, or did you latch onto this earlier in your life? No, I certainly did not. Um, my mom used to, her, uh, she had a teasing little phrase for me called, a, she used to call me a worry wart. Mm. And uh, I was an athlete when I was young. And so I'm not kidding. I don't remember the exact age, but let's just say 10, 12 years old, something like that. It was Little League. And then all the way through high school, I literally would chart every at bat. And so it would be like I grounded out to third on a 3-2 slider or something. I was That's how obsessed I was about achievement and being better and growing and that sort of thing. It's interesting. I wasn't hyper-competitive against others. I was competitive against myself. Like, yeah. how good could I get? Yeah. And I am quite sure, because my first job in the ministry, I was 19, I'm quite sure I carried that into ministry and would create graphs, how many people were there, you know, mm. what was the money? And again, I'm not putting that down. I was just saying it made me hyper aware that somehow my essential selfhood was connected to those metrics and that I was only a self to the degree that I was hitting targets that I thought I should hit. And that's just by definition kind of neurotic. Yeah. That's very nervous making because that means every Sunday you're discovering whether you're a self, um, yeah. whether you matter, um, you know, uh, whether you're doing things right and all that. So I do think you're right, Steve, that that, that kind of thinking is probably more habitual to younger people. And at some point you just realize, you know, I've got to develop a self um, in relationship to God and others and not merely in relationship to the, the way we would measure success in some way. Are you familiar with the comedian Nate Bargatze? He lives in the same city yes, as you. Yes, I have seen him a couple of times. Yeah, Hysterical, have you yeah. seen, he does a video on Little League Baseball when he was a Little League Baseball player. Uh, I haven't seen that one. I have to go Google that. I'm going gonna, gonna to send it to you and okay, therefore make great. our listeners really curious. You can, listeners, you can find it on YouTube. Um, but he has a delightful story similar to what you were sharing about um, his exploits in Little League Baseball. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wonder. Th this weekend, I'm I'm preaching on paying more keen attention to the presence of God, and mm. um, I've been playing with an idea. You know, Dallas Willard famously told John Ortberg that you must elim ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, and now right. John Mark Comer has just well, had yes. written a book on that, and yeah. it's wonderful. Book, yeah. mm -hmm. And I, I started to think. I wonder if we should be looking at that through the lens of human development. That when you're in your twenties and you're doing all this striving ruthlessly eliminating it seems impossible but you could eliminate it in five moments in your week yeah is that what it is that we just we don't go for this ultimate goal we just chip away at it a little bit yeah well a correlation comes to my mind um because of the work i've done and having to raise money over the years it means i've just known a lot of really wealthy christian families who are really trying to do good work but when you're really wealthy you can make mistakes. Like if you're really wealthy and trying to start a business, well, big amounts of wealth, you can make mistakes and go, oh gosh, that didn't work. We printed that t-shirt and wasted $10,000. Well, to you and I, $10,000 is a lot of money. To others, it's like just a learning moment. I think there's maybe a correlation there, Steve, that when we're really young and full of energy, we can make a lot of mistakes related to hurry 
mm. busyness, over calendared, because we've got the we're like millionaires in energy, right? We're twenty something. <laughs> yes. You're you're young at forty nine. I'm sixty five. I I just don't have, I I don't I can't pay for. It, it costs so much to drive my life into hurry now. Mm. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, what I think if I remember the story rightly, and I believe I don't want to say this for sure, but I, I have I, I don't know now if I'm living off Ortberg's memories or my own. But this was back in the day when people had day timers before we yeah. had phones. Yeah. And Dallas had in his scribble scribbled across the front page of his day timer, ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And John saw it and asked him about it. I think maybe I saw it too, or maybe Dallas showed it to some of us or something where he had, and and we did, we started questioning him about it. And it was either he or maybe it was Richard Foster who said that, that hurry is like a sickness of the soul because what drives us into hurry, no, let, let me, sorry, let me go back. Dallas used to say, it's possible to be busy, like to have a really full day. That's different than being in a hurry. Hurry is more something that comes out of our soul. And so Dallas would often say, Jesus was often busy but never in a hurry. Uh, because again, Dallas would get at that hurry normally came out of our own perfectionism or being a fixer, like I'm a total fixer. And so if something's wrong, you want to fix it like now fast. Like, yeah. like what's the virtue in waiting for something wrong to be fixed, right? Yeah. Or Dallas talking about abandoning outcomes to God. So what I think what Dallas and lots of others uh, in the spiritual formation literature are trying to get us to see is it's what's underneath hurry that's actually the really big problem, what drives us into hurry. Yeah. You know, I, I just as I was listening to you, Todd, especially when you just talked about fixing, that was on my list to talk to you about. Um, I think the other unique pressure pastors have tripped into the last few years is that it seems like we're more aware of how profoundly broken our culture is. It's almost yeah. like we didn't realize. And it's profoundly broken in so many areas. I think we feel overwhelmed on where to start. Yeah. And that one of the unique challenges, particularly of being a, a white man with a lot of power, is most of the areas of brokenness either benefit me Right. Or don't affect me, you know, yes. one or the other. I'm either benefiting from the bad systems or I'm unaffected. But it does feel like we've lost patience for brokenness. We we have yeah. all this outrage. And I know I face it from a congregation. We are we we would describe ourselves as a highly activist church, but still not activist enough for some of our people sure. and way too activist for the others. Yes. What's your coaching for pastors as they try to step into we're talking abuse and horrific systemic racism and some of these profound gender disparity. Yeah. What's your word there? Well, there's probably an appropriate explanatory value in helping people see systemic uh, or institutional kinds of wrong or harm, whether it's racism or um, medical issues where, you know, some people are not getting the medical care they should get or whatever. I mean, yeah. like you said, there's so many incarceration. There's so many things we could talk about and no human being can do anything. I'm sorry, can do everything. So I think you're right, Steve. What happens is the avalanche of what shows up on our news feeds. I'm holding up my phone that so Steve can see yeah. on the squad cast here that the avalanche of bad news that shows up on our news feeds every day, I think leads us to either feeling impotent, powerless, and so then there's a temptation to kind of throw up our hands and do nothing. Or we get angry 
And then normally with that anger comes judging people who don't see what I see, getting impatient with people and things. I said to a group of my clergy the other day, this is something we're working through, is how do we simultaneously, passionately get after these areas of injustice without sacrificing the ethic of the New Testament, right? There's an ethic in Jesus all about the heart and that the issues of life come from the overflow of the heart. There's an ethic in Paul, the fruit of the Spirit. Consider others better than yourself. Like, so you see what I'm saying? Like, I can't simultaneously be really ticked off at somebody who can't see what I'm seeing about race and think of them better than myself. Like, see, yeah. start, think, start thinking of those Pauline ethics. And I think you're right to point this up, Steve, that it's a great challenge right now to marry the kind of passion it takes to make change against these principalities and powers, again, to think of Paul. They yeah. don't just yield. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I've never even said this out loud, so I hope I'm not being theologically inappropriate. But, you know, Paul says that the cross disarmed them, but yet the cross didn't, like, put them fully out of business. We still live in this eschatological tension, this time between the times. And, and so I think it's hard for us to, again, think, I want to have the passion, the kind of insistence, the persistence to work against uh, the social injustices of our day, the inequalities, without losing the ethic of Jesus. And, and, and sorry for the cheesy promo for my book, but that's what I try to do in my book is try to yeah. show people how is it that Jesus was simultaneously at peace and doing his crazy life. Talk about a crazy life. Um, constantly badgered by the religious leaders, misunderstood by others, you know, betrayed, falsely ar arrested, etc., and he went through all of it with undescribable peace. Now, again, I know we're not perfect and we'll never do Jesus exactly, but we all are trying to take on Christ-likeness to one degree or another. So I, I don't think I've given a very good answer here, Steve, other than to say I think you've identified something that's really important. Marrying um, appropriate passion to the ethic of the New Testament. And of course, that's what MLK was trying to do with his whole vision was rooted in agape. And his whole vision of the beloved community was for everybody, white, black, brown, Asian. It, that was the whole point of this beloved community. Again, sort of channeling Paul, you know, that we're all one in Christ or Revelation 7, 9. So sorry, that was a bit of a long answer. No, it's, it's right. I think it's right on track. When I when I'm doing my workshops and teaching on the nature of chronic anxiety and, you know, mm. systems theory, yeah. I, I've, I frame it as a um, oppressor. You know, your chronic anxiety is an oppressor. Uh, and, and just the simple idea that all through history, you study every single civil rights movement from Moses to MLK. Mm -hmm. to, to your point of the cross disarmed the powers, mm -hmm. there's never in history where the oppressor willingly hands over power to the oppressed. Yes. You do have to right. fight for, fight yes. for it. Yeah, and, and I do think that's the case you're making in your book. Like I, I run into too many faith leaders that they think it's a selfless thing to sacrifice their own well-being for the sake of ministry to others. Yeah. But you're, you're really making a case that you can be in the thick of it and experience peace. Uh, chapter four of your book, The Trinity of Peace. I'm mm -hmm. just going to do one of my favorite things with guests, Todd, is read to them what they wrote. <laughs> <Here's> the <quote. laughs> 
Here's a quote from the book. We don't deny daily reality. We inhabit it. We do so apart from any quest to find love and acceptance, which is maybe the biggest peace stealer of all. Before we enter any moment of life, the love and acceptance of Jesus are already the place where we dwell. Mm. Well, what's your, what more would That's you like beautiful. to hear? Who wrote that? <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Sorry, Steve, what were you saying? Well, what's your what more would you like us to know about the Trinity of Peace and and the idea that oh, we're yeah. we don't have to strive, we just have to relax into the grace of God. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to say in that section is that um peace is fundamental to our Trinitarian God in the same way that love is or wisdom is. Peace is fundamental. We must never picture the Trinity bickering, for instance, mm. or wondering what one of the other one thinks about the other one, the sort of, those sorts of human things that drive us into, as you said, chronic uh, anxiety. Um, so yeah, the vision I want uh, maybe comes through in that story from the upper room, John 13. I love the way Eugene Peterson gets this in the message where he, he has uh, the text saying, Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father. So just think of Jesus, knowing that he'd come from a Trinitarian reality that was fundamentally marked by peace, and knowing that he was returning there, knowing that all power had been given to him, well, what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet, including Judas, and says, see, I've given you, you know, a model to follow. So that's what I had in mind there. What would allow us to stand in the craziness of life as persons who are fundamentally of peace? And I never want a listener to think I mean perfection. I don't mean that. I don't mean that we never feel anxiety or never feel fearful. I don't mean that as all, at all. But just like fundamentally, uh, routinely, rhythmically, fairly consistently, we're able to be present to human life as persons of peace. And I think that, that that's a reality that flows to us from God before it flows through us to others. It, it's like it's... I think it's like fundamental to the, our pursuit of Christ-likeness. So many leaders I talk to, they, they're just pure conduits. They're just a, what they see as a selfless pipe yeah. of God's love to others that it never makes us stop. It doesn't, it doesn't stay within. They, like everything they receive, they pass on. I, I, love, yeah. I love this vision of just you're worth love because of Christ, not because of what you do. And you, yeah. you have to receive some for yourself. Oh, I think that's super common, Steve. It's been a battle for me mm -hmm. uh, on and off my whole life because, as you probably know, just knowing who you are, if you're a perfectionist like me, I can always see something, some things wrong with me. And because I'm a perfectionist, I don't like it when things are wrong. Yeah. Therefore, I project onto God that I'm, I'm, I'm his creation and I'm wrong, meaning I'm not perfect. And so then I project onto God my perfectionism, and then then I start reading God as, well, he must not really like me either because, like, I can't get it together. I still do feel anxious, or I still do feel worried. I still have moments of unrighteous anger or whatever. And, yeah, I think you're really right. Coming, uh, coming to grips that the one true creator Lord of the whole cosmos— uh, loves us, you know, to the degree as the gospel say that the hairs of our head are numbered. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think for me, that's been a lifelong journey. And I would say, Steve, maybe um, 
maybe one of the most profound journeys of my whole life. Mm. Like, I think I've been able to leverage lots of other spiritual growth against that. But that precise spiritual growth, I think, is it's actually been hard for me. I think that's been the battle of my life to experience particularly the love of God that I yeah. even profoundly proclaim to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I know for me, I, I quit in 2015 mm. putting up with it. That, that yeah. was, I noticed I'm tolerating this for the sake of ministry. So yeah. I've now been on a six-year bender of the love of God. And it's, um, well, at first it's terrifying. And then it's wonderful. You know, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the initial yeah. results are scary. But w- when I did my clinical pastoral education, my supervisor, I'm sorry to tell you, Todd, was an Episcopal priest. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Uh, yeah, very sketchy fellow. Um, <laughs> uh, his name was Peter. I, I learned so much from him. But yeah. he, he was the first person in my life to invite me to consider that my so-called selflessness was not selfless at all, mm. that I was gaining something by pouring it all out rather than receiving and it it continues to haunt me. Yeah. Um, what's been helpful for me is friends, colleagues who can reflect reality back to me that I can't see myself. So in those moments when I can only see my imperfections for someone else to appreciate me for some reason, is very helpful. Now, obviously, we have to be careful that we don't get addicted to the approval of others. But on the other hand, we are social beings, and we were created to be in community and in families. And I think part of the goodness of a healthy community and a healthy family is that we can reflect reality to each other in ways that help our self-condemnation. Friends, I know we've got a lot of new listeners in season seven. You know, as Todd so poignantly pointed out, the Delta variant for many of us was the final straw. And so someone told you about this podcast is just a, hopefully for you, a relief. That's really why I do this show. Well, first of all, I do it so I can meet some amazing people. That's true. But also for my listeners, hopefully for you to get some relief out of this. I just want you to know that I run an online community. It's called Capable Life. You can check it out at capablelife.me. The, the, the simple fact is I've been teaching a class at my church for 10 years. It's a nine-month class. People meet for two hours every other week. And we slowly and gently go through the systems theory and the gospel because I don't know how to encounter transformation fast. I know sometimes when I'm on the other side of the microphone, when I'm the guest and someone else is the podcast host, right. once yeah. in a while they want the three steps to reduce anxiety or the 30-minute solution. And I always disappoint them because it's long, slow work. All I can tell you is it's very worthwhile. Um, I know, you know, Bishop Todd does the same work, has been doing it for decades. So for me, this online community is the slow path. And it's only for those of you who are looking for deep relief uh, CapableLife.me. It's a series of brief 10-minute videos. It's a confidential discussion forum where you can post anything you want and it's safe. I've got certified coaches in there uh, helping you. We do monthly Zooms. It's an interactive community. Right now, we have about 400 members from 16 different countries. 
and it's wonderful. It's pastors, it's missionaries, it's business leaders and medical professionals and parents. So if that sounds interesting to you, just go to capablef.me, check it out. You can sign up monthly or annually and uh, get some relief as well. And speaking of relief, Todd, um, you know, you remember this from last time, uh, the, the notorious gauntlet of anxiety questions. I'm I've trembling it, already. Yes, I can see. Uh, I, I've heard it described as a combination of a roller coaster and a proctological exam. So, <laughs> All righty then. Yeah. <laughs> so for you, I've just got four questions. And right. um, the, we'll kind of go in, in increasing depth and then we'll have a, the fourth one will be a little reliever. All right, the first one, in your leadership, where do you keep running into yourself? What's, what's one trait you just wish you could break? It's that fixer thing. I, I get really impatient when I can't figure something out. It's maybe the most frustrating thing in my whole life. If I, if I see a leadership issue that I feel like I should be fixing and I can't fix it, it is really frustrating to me. Great. Some of the work we do is the inner critic work or the story we tell ourselves. Yes. And uh, we try to help our people notice how... Yeah. The story they tell themselves is bad news and the message of the gospel is good news. It's often in competition. Yes. So I was wondering with your inner critic, how would you fill in the blank to this? The, uh, the sentence is, what if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? What would be the blank for you? Patient. Like I am legendarily patient with others. Like if you ask people who've worked for me or worked with me, uh, everybody would think of me as a very patient person, but inside of me, Steve, I'm I'm not patient with myself. I've learned to, as a leader, to project patience. You might say. I think my my genuine love for others makes me typically not be impatient with them, but I'm very impatient with myself. You know, it's that perfectionist mm. fixer thing I've dealt with seriously yeah. since I was a boy. Yeah, since you were a little boy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. I've found that a lot of Christians have a gap between what they believe about God and what mm -hmm. they experience from God. And I think they are surprised to discover that their faith leaders yeah. have that gap as well. I think they sometimes think that we don't carry that gap. Is there a current gap for you between something particularly you believe about God versus what you experience from God right now? I believe that God since Abraham and certainly with the coming of Jesus, the sending of the Spirit, and the creation of the church, has been trying to put the world to rights. And I am having a hard time feeling like I am meaningfully engaged in that. I sometimes don't even know where to begin. It's kind of back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, that's probably my biggest struggle right now. It's, it's not precisely, you know, technical theodicy. Why is there suffering in the world? It's more, how do we be the ambassadors of the kingdom? How do we be the cooperative friends of Jesus? I'm very passionate about it, but I always feel like it's just out of reach. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I do think you're speaking for a lot of people in that. It's, even what does it actually look like? Because on some levels that feels like we demand mm. utopia on the other swing we can't just right. sit on our hands yeah. it's yeah does it feel like a drop in the ocean to you is it that is like you mentioned like the yeah. carrot out of reach but is it also like a minuscule yes that's that would be another good uh analogy 
Um, another one would be just um, do our little micro victories make a difference or do we have to make a big splash that, you know, shows up on CNN or something? And well, then that matters. And then there's of course a huge gap between a word of kindness to somebody in a grocery store and something that, you know, a, a New York times bestselling book, or you show up on CNN or something. Um, and there's a huge gap between that. And I think many of us constantly judge ourselves on that spectrum about whether we're making a difference. And then of course that backs up to what we talked about in the beginning, our personhood. Like, like I'll just speak for myself. If I'm not making a difference, that erodes my personhood. And that's oh, not a good right. thing. <laughs> you know, something they have to battle with. Oh, I, I can imagine, especially for a, for a yeah. fixer perfectionist, mm -hmm. that would be torture to not. Yeah. Well, and as you talk to the, the challenge, right, Todd, is that the fixer perfectionist yeah. has so much kingdom gifting yes. in it. There's just the shadow side as well. You, you're constantly trying to navigate that thin line. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'm late to Enneagram stuff. I'm late to, um, oh shoot, strength finders, you know, and when, when I was young, I did a lot of those more inventory things, but that, that word you just used about shadow self, or I forget what the technical Enneagram term is, but the, like the other side of yourself. Um, yeah, I think now that I look back at my life, Steve, with that lens on, I can see the great strengths, you know, I mean that modestly. But I can also see the shadow sides that sometimes animated those strengths. And that's not what, that's not good. Yeah. Cause you can't sustain it. And it's really not as spiritually healthy as we'd want it to be. And the final question, it's the question I asked before. I'll just phrase last time you're on the show, I'll just phrase it a little bit differently. When recently in your life have you felt most fully and completely loved? I'm working on a new book for InterVarsity on Jesus. And I just told my wife last night at dinner, I feel so, you know, that movie that uh, Chariots of Fire, mm -hmm. where yeah. the famous runner says, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. Yeah, Eric Liddell. I'm yeah. really feeling the nearness and pleasure of God as I think deeply about the person and work of Jesus and try to write about it. I'm trying to gain mm -hmm. a fresh hearing for Jesus, for nuns and duns and skeptics. And man, I just had be hard to explain. I almost feel like I lose myself, lose sense of time or where I'm even sitting as I just start getting into this person and his context and his work. It's been amazing. I mean, I you know what it's like. People don't, here's another thing people don't get about us ministers is that we grow first. Like if we've given a decent sermon, it's because yeah. we've grown first. And I think that's what I'm experiencing. I'm experiencing my own growth uh, in and towards Christ as I do this work. And it's just amazing. Oh, it's beautiful. Folks, you can find Todd at toddhunter.com. He's often speaking at different conferences and, and workshops. His, his movement of churches is amazing. I know several people uh, deeply involved in both his particular stream of Anglicanism, but even just the, the broader Anglican stream. And I just want to say as a fellow struggler, the, the work that's going on in that kind of unique charismatic Ang Anglican tradition, not just in United States, but globally, yeah. uh, it's worth chasing for the rest of us. There's something there that's, it's not perfect, but it is right. special. Yeah. So Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It was great to connect again. Thank you, Steve. Love you. Love your audience. I'm so, uh, so appreciative of your work. 
For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.